0: Today's program has been brought to you by Colavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Colavita.com. Today's program has been brought
1: to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Hey folks, Michael Michael here. Welcome to Food Talk on this crazy week here in the United States of America. Wow. Holy shit. Who saw that coming? Um, Apparently nobody. Yikes. Four years of President Trump. I can barely utter those words. I don't know if we can watch the news for a while. But anyway, um, (laughs) on to more pleasant subjects. New York was home to the first yet in America, Raw Wine Festival, which is the brainchild of Isabelle Légeron, a French expat living in London now, a master of wine, which is quite a distinction in and of itself. Um, and she's a huge proponent of natural wines, uh, which is a term that's kind of being bantered about these days to encompass organic and biodynamic low so2 if not no so2 wines non interventionist wines there's a whole bunch of different descriptors for these um and it was it was a great success it was held just one subway stop from where i'm sitting here at roberta's which is the morgan stop it was one stop further out on the l train the jefferson stop in a space i'd never been to before but sort of emblematic of the whole scene here it was You know, you're sitting next to construction cranes and auto body shops and razor wire. Then you enter off the street to this great little wine bar and a huge event space. Um, It was sold out Sunday. There were a thousand people that paid the tickets to come in and taste wines from winemakers that really had come from all over the planet. Um, The list was curated by Fuchsia. And, excuse me, it's my next guest, um, Isabella. And um, and Monday was amazing, too. I think they sold out Monday as well. I had a panel there with Tony Couture, who's one of the OG bio-organic guys out of California, who's amazing. His story, he's been making natural wines in Sonoma County since like the late seventies, which is crazy because nobody was doing it. Then nobody was doing it 10 years later or 10 years after that. And fast forward to today and he's still a real oddity out there. Um, there's a few producers in in Northern California, Sonoma, Napa, very, very few, to be honest with you. Um, so he's just one of those guys who's been doing it. His family has been doing this forever. So it's nice to meet him in person. He's kind of a legend. Um, But here's today's show in a nutshell. I'm happy to have back, I I believe, and Fuchsia can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when I was at WOR back in the days when I was doing that show six days a week, um, out of 111 Broadway downtown, we had a phone interview with Fuchsia for one of her books. She's great. She's a British-based food writer. Um, I'm guessing she fell in love with uh, Chinese food when she was the BBC news correspondent um, and was was I, I'm assuming based there she'll tell me that she has at the moment I have five books maybe six that have all been boring down on various aspects of Chinese cooking and her most recent one is Land of Fish and Rice recipes from the culinary heart of china um after fuchsia we're going to run this for about 20 minutes take a quick break and then i've got alice firing coming in alice and i are old buddies and we're going to switch gears and talk wine for the last half of the show alice has been one of the long proponents of the natural wine movement here stateside back really when nobody was talking about it when she was really considered kind of a a crazy outlier um but that's been what she's been doing. That's her bellywick since as long as I've known her. Um, so we're going to talk about the Raw Wine event, what she does, Wines of Georgia, which is something that she specializes in. But first, uh, let me welcome the first time here for Food Talk at Heritage, Fuchsia Dunlop. Fuchsia, thanks for coming on. Hello. Nice to meet you. Now, am I wrong? Did we do an interview years ago or do you not remember?
2: No, we did, but I can't remember the name of the show. But we did definitely talk a few years ago. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was a while back. So anyway, pleasure. So just by way of backstory, because I'm famous for like mangling stuff like this. <laughs> to tell me when I mean your every one of your books is this the sixth or the fifth Did I get that part this right?
2: Is the fifth, but one of them has different titles in the United States and Britain, which is why you might think there are six.
1: Okay, all right, all right. So whatever, <laughs> I'll give myself a, a B on that one. But what what was it the the, the time you did as a, a East Asian analyst for BBC News. Is that kind of what puts you in head first into the, the whole world of Chinese cuisine?
2: Oh, well, I first got interested in China when I had a sub editing job for part of the BBC and I was reading all this stuff about the Asia Pacific region. But um, the China thing really started when I went, as a result of this job, I just went on holiday to China and fell in love with it and started learning Mandarin in evening classes and then got a scholarship to study in China full time for a year. And um, that's when, you know, I very quickly got distracted from my academic studies and ended up spending all my time in kitchens. <laughs> and then from there, to, to um, I ended up um, being the first Westerner to study at this famous Sichuanese cooking school in Chengdu. And that really changed the course of my life.
1: It's crazy, right? Plan as we will when destiny taps you on the shoulder.
2: You yeah, know, when really good food sort of tempts your appetite and you just can't resist.
1: <laughs> so the latest book, is you've, you've been putting these out, I guess, once every couple of years, you seem to have a new one out. And they're great. They're Always Norton as the publisher?
2: Yeah, in the United States, Norton all the way through.
1: Okay, because they're beautiful. I mean, they're beautifully put together. The covers are gorgeous. The, the, the photos are great. Uh, who was the photographer for this one?
2: The photographer of this is this wonderful Japanese woman in London called Yuki Sugura, who, yeah, I mean, I love the photo. She was a joy to work with.
1: Yeah, it's not... uh, It's it's funny because you know sometimes you see like o- overly produced and that's just every one of these shots from you know the pot sticker dumplings to the steamed fish like every one of them and i'm like i want that i want that i want that it's this is so beautiful it's just so nicely done looks like not to if she didn't use natural light she fooled me but they're just beautifully beautifully shot it's a great book um again the name of the book is land of fish and rice recipes from Heard of china fuchsia dunlop is my guest so Kind of in America, like in a nutshell, you're here all the time. I know you were here. I, I missed you on the tour. We just couldn't coordinate the days you were available and the days I was available doing the show. And I think I was I was out one of those weeks. Um, but you know, we kind of kind of know Cantonese food here. That was one of the you know early styles in Sichuan and in New York City. There's a couple of uh, of Yunnan restaurants around and kind of mishmashes of this and that. But I, I, Jang Nan, talk about this place in China, because it took you a while to write about this, but it seems like the history is remarkable.
2: Yeah, well, the Jiangnan region in Chinese means south of the river, south of the Yangtze River, and that's the region including Shanghai, but the Shanghai and the two inland provinces, Zhejiang and Jiangsu, and it's really one of the ancient centres of Chinese gastronomy and has a tradition going back hundreds of years of fine food, of cookery books, of people, poets rhapsodising about the food and sort of highly technical and accomplished cooking, but it's not very well known. in the West at all. You know, everyone's heard of Shanghai. Right. And in New York, actually, you do have a few Shanghainese restaurants.
1: Yeah, Joe's Shanghai is one right on Bayard Street
3: downtown.
2: Exactly. But, um, and China Blue, I went to the other day, which is wonderful, sort of modern Shanghainese. But, um, but, you know, this is a great region. It's not just about Shanghai. There's Shaoxing, where the famous rice wine comes from, Hangzhou, with its beautiful West Lake, Yangzhou, all these places have really fantastic dishes. And, you know, um, fascinating food cultures.
1: Who is this early on? You've got to, so the book is laid out with this kind of, is it called an introduction or what do you call that? That sort of long part in the beginning that tells the story of the region and the history of the region
2: yeah the introduction
1: but it's great it? it's, it's it's longer than usual and it's it's a completely riveting read because it kind of talks about the region the history of the region the ingredients that it's rich with and then suddenly this this character appears whose nickname is Odd Die talk talk to me about this
2: Oh, Adai. Um, His his proper name is Dai Jianjun, and he's a remarkable man who owns an extraordinary restaurant in Hangzhou. And um, it's sort of like you know, if you think of Chez Panisse and their you know concern with ingredients, with provenance, with the seasons, this is like the Chinese equivalent. And what Adai has done is sort of um, revive and preserve the local cooking tradition by recruiting retired chefs from the classic restaurants in Hangzhou. But not only that, he sources all the ingredients from what we would call organic farms and traditional producers. And it's the most exquisite Chinese cooking that I've had in this region. And it's one of the best restaurants in the whole of China. But I, I met him, in fact, meeting him was a kind of catalyst for the book. I was already a bit interested in the Jiangnan region, but this restaurant just showed me how good the food would be. And I spent a lot of time in the kitchens there and with him and his staff going around to the farms and the fishermen and um, the producers and learning about where the food comes from, as well as how it's actually cooked.
1: So you mentioned Alice Waters and Chez Panisse, and that was kind of like a, in the early days of the San Francisco scene, circa mid-70s. Mid, mid um, she was kind of a pioneer in this for various reasons. Some of it was just coincidental. Um, her dad was encouraging her to keep food costs down by buying from farmers, which <laughs> turned out to be a good idea on a whole lot of levels. Um, but fast forward now to today. And of course, you know, you travel back and forth. and I'm sure it's the same with the, the London food scene, which is on fire. Uh, but you know, down here in the States, like everything's farm to table, everything's local, we've got farmers markets all the time. In China, for whether it's fine dining or regular dining, is that still kind of an outlier what Adai's doing?
2: Is he? Still, is he the Is it, is
1: it, is that still an outlier? This idea of being so specific in sourcing great ingredients. I mean, well, I read that section okay, on him, modern and
2: I in China is quite radical, but China actually has a tradition going back hundreds, if not thousands, of years, long before California and the Nordic countries discovered this kind of concern. Chinese gourmets have sought out the finest produce from the right place in the right season, and have been extraordinarily concerned with with the ingredients. And and how they're used. And so, in a way, what Adai is doing is resurrecting Mm. a tradition that's got slightly lost with China's sort of cultural revolution and rapid industrialization and sort of bringing it up to date. But actually, it has really ancient roots in China much longer, actually, than in the West.
1: Yeah, you talk about that. You said sort sort of rhapsodizing, I mean, going back literally, you know, thousands, many hundreds of years, quoting philosophers and poets and chefs, this, that, I love that line of uh, thinking of peach and water shield, is that it? Perch and water shield, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, that's, um, there's this legend that um, in the fourth century, an official of the Jin dynasty, Jiang Han, who was posted um, to a job in the north of China, he missed (laughs) the sliced perch and water shield soup of his hometown in the Jiangnan region so much that he he abandoned his post and went home <laughs> that's how much people love the food of this region uh, i was
1: about to say a, a committed foodie um from a long long time ago um, so talk uh, talk about the lay land because we have uh, just uh, before we go into the recipes which are great i, I want people to get a sense of the geography so we we have shanghai and we have Jiangsu to the north um, it goes inland so there's a there's a some, some gi- ginormous lakes in there, right? Didn't you write about some huge lake in there?
2: Yeah, well, this whole region, it's a very watery region. Right, so you've got a whole coastline, too, I should say. Coastline. Right. And also many lakes and rivers. And that's one of the things that's really interesting about the food of the region is the water foods. So not only an absolutely fabulous range of seafood from the coast... But also lots of freshwater creatures, not just fish, but also crabs, eels, delicious little slippery freshwater shrimp, and also water vegetables. And again, not just the familiar lotus root and water chestnut, but things like wild rice stem and fox nuts and um, water shield. So all these extraordinary water plants and creatures, which, which are one of the most distinctive aspects of the local cuisine.
1: What is water shield?
2: Well, water shield is a sort of, um, it's like a kind of water plant with little gray-green leaves, Um, and each little leaf tip is covered in, it sounds horrible in English, but it's a layer of transparent slime, Um, but in Chinese, it has a gorgeous, slippery mouthfeel. It's incredibly refreshing and delicious, so it's one of these foods that's prized as much for its texture as for its taste.
1: Right? I'm guessing that for uh, for for Westerners that are squeamish about like consistency of food, it may be a kind of off-putting.
2: But I think if you have someone to explain it to you, and it looks so beautiful, so you have this clear broth with these gray-green leaves, usually garnished with little wisps of chicken breast and pink ham. So it does look beautiful and appetizing, and if you're prepared to just give it a go, you'll probably love it.
1: So you've got this big coastline that's, that's saltwater, you've got rivers going in, and then you've got these lakes, and also rice is front and center here.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is one of the main rice growing regions right. of China. And in fact, some of the earliest people to domesticate rice were in this region. And so rice is the staple food. So you get not only steamed rice, but soupy rice, congee, fried rice, and also sort of lots of rice dumplings and things. So rice is definitely the staple food of this region.
1: Talk to me. There's a, there's a picture on page 16 of a gentleman with a hat on knee deep in some kind of a bog and he's gathering underwater fruits, um, starchy fox nut that's
2: the fox nut that I just mentioned that's the one you're talking about okay so you get these big ponds and huge leaves a bit like waterloo leaves on the surface and underneath you get these sort of fruits that look a bit like pomegranates and if you break them open you get all these round seeds and if you pull off the outer coating of the seed you get these little white nuts like um, they're about the size of pearls bright white and um, they're a great delicacy and they're often used in the cooking of Suzhou, which is a, a canal city you might know for its classical gardens which are very famous
1: all right early on in the book and i'm, I'm where, where do i have a note here it's it's funny because it looks like a little bar snack but i the more i looked at it and read the recipe i'm like i want this of course you know I was probably reading the book hungry but um or it made me hungry page 36 this crispy seaweed and peanuts talk about this crazy dish what, what is
2: this well, that's another of the saltwater the salt products. But Ningbo on the coast, which is a city just south of Shanghai, um, they have this amazing kind of seaweed, which is known sometimes as sea moss or branch string lettuce. So it's long green strands, and when they're dried, you get these kind of stained, skeins of dark green seaweed. Now, if you f- deep fry it, um, it has a very crisp texture and it has this delicious umami flavour. Mm. And one of the ways you can use it in sweet dishes and Savory dishes, but one of the ways they eat it is with um, fried peanuts, like a sort of appetizer, with a bit of salt and a bit of sugar, and it's delicious. The
1: the the very very next page, there was a moment in time when you know I so I've got a PBS show in New York for going into my fifteenth year, and was a chef, and had on and off have done radio for 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 quite some time. Um, and it's it's and and, so I eat out a lot and I read a lot, and it seemed like about a year ago it was popping up on all these menus all over the city. This kind of Cucumber dish where the cucumber was sort of cr- not crushed but kind of whacked be- first A and
2: smacked. Cucumber, that's the word. Thank like you, smack cucumber.
1: Hi, right, <laughs> and then you've got this, it's the very next page after that After that little seaweed and peanut thing, um, and it kind of reminds me of what, I, I was working with Dookie Hong this year for the PBS show, he's a Korean chef based in New York, young kid, great, great guy, and we were talking about, you know, obviously if you're talking Korean food, you're talking kimchi, and he likes to use like kimchi-ing things, like it's, like it's an active verb, where you can kind of, you don't have to just make traditional kimchi, you can create a kind of a, the kimchi flavor base, and then kimchi almost anything you want and you've got this great looking quick cucumber salad which we kind of make this at home in my house once in a while because it's not this one but the idea because cucumbers are so malleable and you know with a little salt and a little vinegar and leave them out they're quick to ferment they break down there's a lot of water talk about this because this just really looks delicious again simple and delicious
2: yeah, really, really simple. So it's just basically um, cucumber, salted a bit to get out some of the water, and then mix it with a brown rice vinegar, which has a lovely complex taste, and sugar and garlic. And that sweet and sour flavour with a bit of garlic is very Shanghainese. They have a lot of sweet dishes in Shanghai. So it's kind of refreshing, sweet, sour, and garlicky. It's a lovely appetizer.
1: And it looks re- relatively simple to make. Again, this is why I love. These recipes where it looks like honestly with five ingredients and in fifteen minutes you can make this thing at home. Yeah,
2: totally easy. Uh, to- really
1: totally simple. easy. Not so easy uh, is this book. Uh, this this great um, lotus root stuffed with glutinous right. I love the picture, and I'm thinking, oh god, this is a ton of work. But that dish sounded so delicious to me. Talk about this because it, it's there's a fair amount of steps involved. But it sounds like uh, it sounds like if I find it on a lot of menu, I'm ordering it if it's done well. But talk about that dish because it's really kind kind of interesting on how they're, how they're using lotus root in this
2: yeah well that's another dish from sort of Hangzhou and Shanghai a water vegetable lotus root and a lotus root so you peel it and you cut off one end of the segment and you've got holes running all the way through the right. lotus root right. and you stuff them with soaked glutinous rice grains And then you cook it until it's really tender and the rice swells up and fills up, you know, the the channels through the the lotus root. And then you serve it with a kind of syrup flavored, if you can get them, with osmanthus flowers, which are a lovely floral um, flavoring of this region. And normally then it's sliced and served with this syrup. And it's got this lovely sticky glutinous texture, sweet but not too sweet. And and the sort of lovely texture, the huggy texture of the glutinous rice running sort all the
1: way through, it really—it looks again. It's a fair amount of steps to make it, but it looks so darn good to eat. Um,
2: yeah, uh, it's not difficult. You just have to cook it for a while.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 how do you how do you get the when it's whole like that? How do you get the the, the, the glutinous rice that's been rinsed down? Would you use a piping bag or what are you using? Just treat
2: it in with a chopstick so you put, put your chopstick <laughs> in the holes to make sure they're all clear and then stuff all the glutinous rice in and okay. then okay. put the lid on put the top right. of the stem back with a, with a couple of cocktail sticks to hold it in place.
1: Got you. Um, a buddy of mine and his wife had a restaurant that unfortunately it's, it, it was short-lived this summer um, it was the last last spring and the summer but he had this wonderful play on a Caesar salad but he was using chrysanthemum leaves instead of uh, romaine and it was so good and I'm like that's a great idea. Talk about this. You, you have a recipe here with chrysanthemum leaves with pine nuts where they're blanched and then shocked quickly. Um, but talk about that as that an ingredient because that's something that's readily available in New York's Chinese markets.
2: Yeah, well, that's, it's, a, it's a lovely vegetable with a very unusual, slightly herby flavor. So it's not just any old chrysanthemum. It's the crown daisy or garland chrysanthemum. So you can't use any. You've just got to get the one that they sell in Chinese supermarkets. And, um, yeah, you just blanch it and refresh it to keep that lovely vivid cream color. And then fine chop it, and you can add some some firm tofu pine nuts, and, um, and then just season it with salt and sesame oil. So it's really simple, refreshing, with this really unusual flavor.
1: Yeah, that's that's one I've really got to try because again, you're right to your point, I get, that's it's that I know exactly what that leaf looks like, and they do sell it in the Chinese markets. Um, I live downtown, so I live very close to Chinatown, so I, I, it's in the markets almost year-round. I think down here, um, another dish that again looks like a dish I might eat if I went out because it's a little complicated, but it looks so good. And again, your photographer is is just killed at the plate's gorgeous. Um, is eight treasure stuffed calabash duck. Talk about yeah. this one. because This so is that like
2: you have picked the most complicated dish. <laughs> book, <and laughs> I, I that's did. Sorry. you wanted to have at least one representative of the tradition in Jiangnan of what they call kung fu cooking, gong fu tai, and that's dishes which are you know, require technical skill, and which are a little complicated, but very impressive. So with this, you take a dog and you bone it out completely, and then you make an eight-treasure glutinous rice stuffing. And the treasures are things like green soybeans, little bits of ham, dried shrimps. Um, So you make this lovely eight-treasure stuffing, and you put it into the dog, and then you cook it several stages to cook it. But you basically end up with this gorgeous... Um, sort of um, bronzed, dark um, in a lovely sauce, uh, decorated on a plate decorated with bright green pak choy and then at the table you just cut it open, and this delicious um, eight treasure rice stuffing spills out.
1: Is this one of those methods where to bone it out you flip it over, so it's not the breast side facing you, but it's the other side, and you kind of work it, you work it open that way, so that you can put it back together again, or does it not matter where you how no, you?
2: you you basically start at the neck, and you use kitchen scissors, and you snip around. Okay. It's all explained in the book. And then you sort of, you kind of undress the bird from the carcass, take the carcass out, and then turn it inside out so you can blanch it, turn it right way in, and then stuff it.
1: And, <laughs> and I did. It I, takes I, a
2: little time, but it's No, I'm
1: sorry, I'm sorry. I picked, like, the hardest recipe in the not, book. Not
2: something you want to rustle up after a hard day's work, but, you know, <laughs> <for> a special <laughs> dinner party or something.
1: Yeah, you're not going to whip this up, like, uh, in 20 minutes watching the, the, the BBC News. Um... Beggar's chicken. Talk about this. This one. There's no picture to it, but it just sounded great.
2: Oh well, there is a picture. It's a double oh, page spread. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the next chicken. page. Got and you. It's over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of Hangzhou or Changshu in Jiangsu province, depending yep. on who you talk to. And the, the legend is that a beggar once stole a chicken, um, didn't have a pot to cook it in, so he wrapped it in mud and then baked it in a fire. So the modern dish: you take a chicken and you marinate it in sort of soy sauce and rice wine and ginger and so on. And then you stuff it with a little um, sort of um, leek and pickled mustard and a little pork. And then you wrap it in a soaked lotus leaf, which you can buy dried in Chinese supermarkets, and that will give it a wonderful fragrance. And then traditionally, you then wrap it in mud. But what I've suggested people do, because it's more practical at home, is wrap it in a salt crust pastry. Right. So you wrap it, you completely enclose it, and then you bake it in an oven. And then when your guests arrive, you take it out and you actually use a mallet to smack open the pastry. And then you break it open, unwrap the leaf, and there's this gorgeous, fragrant chicken, beautifully juicy and tender and with the amazing aroma of the leaf. So that's a kind of spectacular dish. not very difficult to do. You just need to get your lotus leaves and, um, you know. I'm good kid. kid. And, and work right and, and work
1: on salt dust once or twice. The, the, the salt dough crust before you try it for the first time with guests. But yeah, it's great because it kind of steams in there. The beauty of cooking like that is it's it creates its own not exactly sous vide, but it's it's steaming with, with all those flavors are interior. And it's when you crack it and open it up, boom, that steam escapes. Smells incredible, and usually the results are just beautiful inside.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a great dish. It's it's a great centerpiece. And also, it has the advantage that it's not, you know, if you do all stir fried dishes for a Chinese meal, it's very much last minute work. But that chicken, you can have it cooking in the oven while you prepare the other dishes. So it's very convenient as well.
1: So, when I'm thinking of Chinese cuisine, again, not that I know much because it's such a big country, it's so varied. But I didn't realize the Chinese had fava beans. So, you've got this one, it's another great photograph of hibiscus blossom egg white with fresh fava.
2: Yeah, well, fava beans are really important in this region. People love eating them in the sort of spring and early summer. And um, this dish, um, the hibiscus blossom, is because you've just got egg white and you cook it very carefully so that you keep its tenderness. So it has this lovely light custardy texture, and it's basically stir fried with the fava beans, which you you, sh- you sh- pod them and then you shell them, so you just get the tender little hearts. And um, so it's a really delicate, lovely, savoury dish. And also they usually. Garnish it with a little bit of chopped cooked ham to so give that bright pink colour. Right, that's what's on the top. To yeah,
1: Right, you get a little, little brunoise of ham, just a little crunch, a little you know flavour popping. Again, if you if you tuned in somehow and you missed it, my guest is Fuchsia Dunlop, who has been writing for as long as i can remember these great recipe books that are sort of also travelogues about the various regions of china we're talking about our latest which is land of fish and rice recipes from the culinary heart um let's go to seafood because it's there's a lot of it in here and there's a lot of it in in this region's cuisine um reeves shad r-e-e-v-e-s shad um talk about that, that 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 fish
2: uh, well, that's one of the great grand dishes of the Yangtze River, although sadly you don't really get them fresh in the Yangtze River anymore. So yeah. this is a fish that used to swim up from the oceans every year, and it has a brief season. And the classic way of cooking it is that it's steamed. That
1: clear steamed sea bass you're calling it.
2: Yeah. It, well, this the reef shad is steamed in its scales because they have this lovely oil in them which moistens the flesh. Anyway, it's very difficult um, to get. You can get frozen and reef shad, but it's difficult to get it fresh, even in China. So what I've done is I've told the story of this classic dish and then explained how you can use the same method to steam the, most, the more easily available sea bass, because this is a method of steaming that you find across the region. And what you do is you make slits into the fish, and you interleave them with slices of ham. And um, so it just looks beautiful. It's a very delicate, lovely way of steaming fish with a bit of ham and shiitake mushroom just to magnify its savory flavors.
1: Is is the fish, we have a shad here that does the same thing in the spring. It runs up from the Atlantic up the Delaware River. It's a very bony fish. Is this, Is this? if you could get that shad or when you could get that shad in China, was it the same way? Was it an oddly bony fish or not so much?
2: It is a very bony fish, yeah. and it's got quite rich flesh, so it's a bit more sort of oily yeah, it's the same. than some of the other fish. But so it, it's fantastically delicious, but yes, it is bony. So
1: this dish would work, again, if you're living on the East Coast and you're familiar with what I'm talking about. The shad run occurs every spring. We love the shad row we eat the shad row usually you find the shad it's pretty fine behind them, pretty hard to find them whole because they're such a pain in the neck to butcher but you could if you could it sounds like an identical i mean the chinese fish that we have is very similar here it's a very oily fish it's a very bony fish but it's a very once you get used to it the the, the flavor is great um
2: well, I'd love to try it with an American chat. I haven't done, but I would have to try it because it sounds great.
1: <laughs> yes, but we'll have to get with the next spring if you if you come stateside. We'll give you the name of some fish yeah. vendors in New York that could help you. Maybe Lou Razzo can hook you up. Um, you have another dish for red braised fish. Talk about this concept of red
2: braising. Well, red braising is a concept that you get all over China, yep. but it really is done most masterfully and most often in this region, the Jiangnan region. And red braising is, is when you use soy sauce and rice wine and sugar to cook ingredients. And they can be fish, can be meat, can be vegetables. And it's from the soy sauce that you get what the Chinese call the red color, that sort of rich, deep, brownish sort of chestnut color. And um, red braised fish is a sort of typical home-cooked a home style, you know, of cooking a fish in Shanghai, Hangzhou, all these places. So you normally fry the fish and then you cook it with the soy sauce, rice wine and sugar and then you let the, the juices reduce to a wonderful opulent gravy. And this kind of dish is particularly good um, with plain white rice, which soaks up all those gorgeous juices. And then I would also serve a dish like that with something sort of bright and refreshing like stir fried pak choi or something to set off the, the richness of the sauce.
1: Yeah, you must know Eddie Schoenfeld when he comes to New York. You know, Ed?
2: Yes, we did an event together in New York two weeks ago.
1: Yeah, he's great. He's great. Years back when I wanted to do a, a sort of tour of Brooklyn Sunset Park, uh, Chinatown, I used him as my Sherpa back when he was still living in Brooklyn. Um, and then I had him cook some dishes for us. He's great. He's like one of the, uh, you know, knows so much about Chinese food and he's such a great guy to, to, to sort of lead us. He's a, you know, obviously a New York born and bred guy, but he's, he's really like my go-to expert around here. Um, it's, all right. We can't talk about this without talking about Chinese steamed soup dumplings. Talk about this because I think this is one of the most. I remember the first couple times I had them, I was thinking, as a chef, putting on my chef set, how the hell did they make that? And then, of course, someone explained it, and I'm like, duh! Like you're a chef, like you would know how to do this, dude. Now it makes sense. But talk about them because we, we've had these that we have. We have the ones that are mixed pork and, and crab, but they're just a, a wonderful thing. But talk about that dish because that's just a, a classic.
2: Yeah. Well, the soup dumpling is one of the few dishes or snacks from this region that's achieved international fame, um, speciality particularly of Shanghai. And what it is, you get these dainty little dumplings with, pin, you know, gathered pinched tops. And you pick them up with your chopsticks, and you put them in your spoon. And then when you pierce them with a chopstick, all this gorgeous stock flows out. So they're really juicy. And you get a filling which is usually based on pork, though, as you say, you know, if you, the luxury ones have crab meat mixed with the pork, and this wonderful stock sauce that comes out and as you said the, sort of the, the secret to these is that you you make a jellied stock so traditionally with pig's feet or pig's skin so you get a gelatinous stock you chill it and then you can cut it up and you mix it with your meat stuffing so it's solid when you wrap the dumplings and then of course as you heat it all that jellied stock melts out um, and there's a sort of trick with them because obviously the wrappers the pastry skins of these dumplings have to be Sort of um, thin enough to be dainty and delicious, but they have to be strong enough to hold in the soup and the stuffing when you pick them up.
1: It's a genius dish. It's really, it's so good. And it's, right, as you said, it's kind of you, you make a very nice gelatinous braise with either a great stock that's, that has some gelatin enhanced that could be from, you know, oxtail or pig's feet or whatever, veal feet, anything that adds gelatin. You let that chill, and of course, it, then it tightens up like a, like a hard as a rock in that form you can form it into the dumplings then once it's heated it just like a braise it just comes apart again so it's it's bloody genius i wonder what the the nexus of that dish was some chef years ago that came up with that idea but whoever he or she was thank you um stay where you are for one second fuchsia is my next guest in because we don't have a green room here okay bingo Fuchsia, we got to run. We we could have gone on and on for an hour with this book. Uh, There was a bunch of rice dishes that were great, noodle dishes that were great, sweet dishes that were great that we didn't get to. And we didn't talk about pork except for the dumplings because pork is huge in all over China, but especially in this region. But I kind of wanted to keep it on the... um because we don't, you know, when we think of Chinese, we do think of pork as a protein, but we don't think as much about the fish. We kind of wanted to bore down on the fish dishes in this book.
2: Yeah, but I do think, yeah, this region has some of the best pork dishes in China, in my opinion.
1: Which is saying a lot, because that's, there's some great pork dishes throughout the land. Thanks so much. I know you're in London, so you're on London time. Hey, how did you feel after the Brexit?
2: After the Brexit, oh, total shock. I mean, it was a bit like the, the kind of shock that I think Americans are in right
1: now. <laughs> right. I, and I remember, I will never forget, like, there's now two days. That I remember. I'll never forget waking up. It was, I think, a Friday in New York. And I woke up in the morning, logged onto my computer, went to the New York Times, saw that it had passed. And I just nearly shat myself because I, I thought, holy mackerel. Everything I was reading, every friend of mine that lives there, Up until the day before, everybody said, no way, no way, no way. It was was kind of a joke, and I hate to say it, but I honestly think Donald Trump's presidency was kind of a joke. I honestly don't think he was serious about winning. Um, His polling the day of the election had him losing as everybody else's polling did, which I think he would have been perfectly happy with just to get his name in the paper for, you know, a year and be on the news cycle and then go back to being what he is. But this is insanity. So, uh, man, uh, you know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we've been through it, you know, and after Brexit, I have to say, I wasn't sort of making any bets on the American election either.
1: Yeah, me neither. Thank Oh God. This is whatever. I guess time will heal everything. Thanks so much for coming on. Fuchsia Dunlop has been my guest. The name of the book is The Land of Fish and Rice. Any of her books are great. So if you just uh, Google her name, F-U-C-H-S-I-A, Dunlop, like the uh, tennis balls or sporting, sporting goods stuff, she's great. All her books are great. She, she, her recipe's great. She does the due diligence. She walks the walk and talks the talk. Thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure. Um, great book.
2: Thank you so much. It's been fun for me, too.
1: Thank you. Stay where you are, folks. I've got Alice Firing in the house. We are going to talk about the world of natural wines, her world, and increasingly, more and more, a world that you're going to find on wine lists and stores growing all the time, so stay tuned for that in a second. Hey folks, Mike Lameco here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients. And these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, When I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table, that's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years, with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I would recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux. Burgundy, champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy, too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you. This isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil That they know, that they've grown up with And the great varietals that we all know and love Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc Petit Verdot, Malbec You know, this, this style of Bordeaux Now that's younger, that's fresher, that's Meant to be consumed now And not cellared, because honestly, which of us Has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine And wait ten years? So The Bordeaux whites are amazing, Uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon. like, hello, two grapes that we know, the reds are all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly, but... If you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For $15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So if you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Yeah, they might have gotten some new. Hey, hey, welcome back. Michael Mecca here. Food Talks the Show. Alice Firing is in the house. If you've listened to the show before, this is, I don't know, her... 75th appearance. I bring her all the time. She's so much fun to talk to. We're kind of uh, kindred spirits. Although you were so far ahead of me in terms of getting to the World of Natural Wine. Congratulations. You had a great panel at Thank the you. Raw event with Pascaline. Yeah, it was. Um, you two guys are just dynamic together. We're gonna, we're gonna just, we'll throw a hint out because it's it's too early. But you've got a book coming out together in which,
0: June. I uh, just found out. That I it is can't in June. wait.
1: And the name of the book is Dirty Wine. Dirty Wine. The story of the Dirty wine, What?
0: Dirty Guide to Wine.
1: <laughs> but it's but it's a pun. It's a tongue in cheek. Yes, it is because it's about. And I'll let you describe what it's about.
0: It is a wine book for beginners that is based on soil type. So basically, the organizing principle for how to learn about wine is through volcanic, sedimentary, and metamorphic soils. The beginning will be like many wine books. We'll have the basic rudimentary um, approach to wine, how to taste wine, how wine is made, and all the stuff that you need to know. So in that way, you really set up for... um, for what comes next and how to taste wine. Now
1: I'm going to stop you. How wine is made because this is something that if you listen to this show maybe you're really into wine or maybe you just like listening to us talk about wine Mm. but I always sort of took certain things for granted until relatively recently and the how wine is made in quotation marks not the wines that you drink and not the wines that I usually drink but the The dirty little secret in the wine industry is that because you don't have to declare anything on the bottle except Mm -hmm. sulfites Mm -hmm. and the alcohol level, Mm -hmm. there are dozens if not hundreds of ingredients as additives that can do anything you want Mm Post-crush, you can use any kind of equipment that you want. You can use reverse osmosis. You can strip it apart, put it back together again. I mean, so, I mean, it's like so much of the wine out there is just like a commercial commodity product.
0: Right. I know this is probably the great 1%. That's natural. Actually, it's growing. It probably is about, I don't know, I'm just guessing, uh, probably about the great 4%
1: nowadays. Mm. So 4% of the global production. But that's just
0: out of the top of my head. It's just um I see so many even conventional wines adding a natural wine line now. So the numbers are are going up there even if they may not really pass muster for what I think is natural.
1: Which is still a question. I mean, this came up the other day when we were having a panel. So I had um You had Tony. I had Tony Katuri who's such a cool guy. Best. I know his wines, and I posted something on Instagram or Facebook a little bit ahead of the fair, and I got a couple of comments. Eric Robert Longlot, if you know him, that Long Island guy, is oh. Katori's God. And so it was so funny because Tony Katori is this just this like when you read his bio and you think about it. So, born and raised in San Francisco Bay Area, was a teenager in the 60s. Um, his parents had a country home in Sonoma. Um, where they would take the kids out every weekend and for the summer. And they, the dad was an Italian guy. And like a lot of Italians, he just made wine, whatever whatever the mix was. They made wine every year. And then Tony, I think, was has a master's degree, or degree in special ed, which is kind of bored with it, decided to become a winemaker. So it's like he's been doing this thing. I mean, you you had the question, which thank you for I I credited you. You know, so this was this we're talking about like the 70s, mid 70s, late 70s, right around the time that Marcel Lapierre comes in from Beaujolais to Paris with his non-sulfured bio wines Mm -hmm. and says, what do you think? And it started a movement there. It right. started in Beaujolais, um, you know, Kermit Lynch documents, those Four Horsemen, which is now five, which is more like dozens. You see it in the Loire Valley. Mm-hmm. I've traveled extensively through Sud-de-France, Languedoc-Roussillon, which, because of the, the great weather down there, is like the biggest, yeah. one of the biggest areas so, for the production of organic and bio wines. But
0: It's because wh- land is cheap.
1: Because land is cheap, and you just have wonderful... You've got those diurnal temperature swings. You've got the wind off the ocean. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a perfect place right. to grow. Uh, but wh- so while this kind of took over all over France and has spread around Europe now, in the States, he's, it's still such an outlier. So I was talking to Tony. I said, who else, you know, who else is doing this near you? And he just said, I don't think anybody is, man.
0: Not there. No, where he is. No, but he, there are some um, people who have come out of the Tony's school and uh, is Hardistry as well. Bloomer Creek up here? Are
1: they, are they, I mean, they were at the fair. They were they're, at the fair. Are they Finger Lakes?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I love, I've always loved their wines.
0: Yeah, they've they, they gone through an evolution when they first started, they weren't like that. Right. Uh, but they definitely were neighbors with Richard Fiegel, who was making pretty natural wines up there for, for Silver Thread. He, unfortunately, he sold a few years ago to people who didn't even keep up his organic vineyard, so... There goes that one. But Well they do buy
1: buy a country home? And
0: (laughs) they wanted to make. It was actually an analogy, professor, or and it was like so. Of course, that they're the worst.
1: (laughs) Because
0: well, because they are scientists Ah, first. They are scientists first, and so they want to make a, you know, a a sane wine with, um, you know, it's not a wine of emotion that they're making. They're, you know what. And a lot of scientists like to dispel the, the myth of organics. You use um, your carpet, carbon footprint; they believe is higher, which um, is widely debatable. But you can skew those statistics any way you want to.
1: Hmm. So but yeah, but
0: Bloomer is great.
1: Bloomer is great. So your backstory. I was I was at Ten Bells last Thursday. There was a little party that Isabel hosted in that back room right. for some of the people that were going to be participating. And I was there not for long, half an hour, so I had to go out to dinner. Um, but I met a, a French woman who has a line that she brings in mm-hmm. who told me this great story that went back to the days where I think she was like maybe introduced you to Pascaline years ago in Paris. Do you know what I'm talking about? She's an importer. I wish I brought her name with me.
0: yeah no she didn't in, well she certainly didn't introduce me. When did you meet
1: Pascaline? so that's my question.
0: okay, I met Pascaline in two thousand and seven two thousand and seven I in Paris in Paris and I was she had just started working for Rouge tomat nobody knew really who Pascaline was except people in the Loire Valley and uh, Pierre Coup, who had the restaurant. Racine, the wine mm. bar Racine at the time, uh, wanted to, he said, when you come here, I want to do a tasting for you or with you. And I thought there was a tasting, he, and there were going to be other people there, but it was just me and some people he wanted to introduce me to as far as bottles, and a couple of winemakers were there. One in particular that he was convinced that I He's on a mission to get me to really love his wines, and I won't mention the name of the winemaker, but he is from the Auvergne because I don't want him to yell at me again the way he did at the Dive Boutte in 2009. (laughs) Um, But actually, was this 2007 or 2008? It may have been just after. No, it was 2007, somewhere around there. And uh, so, lo and behold, he had Pascaline come to play sommelier.
3: Mm. Mm. And then
0: the next week we rendezvoused in, uh, in Venexpo And then Rouge Tamat was just starting work on their place And she was here to help it It was definitely 2007 that I met her So she used my living room as her hotel and so that was it. You know, she became my daughter instantly.
1: Yeah, and her mom was a redhead, too. Yeah. You, know, radio, so you can't see Alice, but Alice is a redhead. Yeah, that was so funny you mentioned that.
0: But who and was it who you, who you met? I'm trying, I'll
1: email you back. I, it's, it's, I didn't bring the notes with me. Was it? She was French. She had. She actually had a, 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 a bio wine from Bordeaux, which was really unusual, a Right Bank wine that she brought called, like, X or something. I don't remember. I'm terrible with names. Was her name Fanny? I don't know. I, I don't know. I have it written down somewhere. Don't worry. Laura? You, don't worry about it. Okay. So so back to what you do I know I've asked you this before, so I'll ask you again because I don't remember the answer. What? When did you get into natural wines? Because you were you have been on this bandwagon since. Wh- I mean, when you were considered like a like definitely a,
0: the old lady an outlier.
1: Wine. You were like the heretic. You were like, yeah. who is this crazy person? Because it, there just wasn't anybody talking about it. No one it was, was talking about. Huh? And it was hard to find them. They weren't of There were not sections of stores carved out like you go into now, and there yeah. is a section for organic and bio. Right. And we can, And now we have importers that like they're Baileywick. I mean, Zev and blah blah blah. On we can go. I mean, Dresden. In his own way, was kind of an early guy there, but um, and now you have that—that's their entire portfolio, so it's gotten easier. But what was it that drew you into it? You were—you were always a wine drinker, and then you tasted a wine one day and just had that ah uh-uh moment. And said, "Why is this different?"
0: Well, well, actually, kind of yes. I was doing a—I um, was doing a book for Food and Wine magazine. It was the 2001 Official Wine Guide. So I was doing all of this work in 2000, 2001.
1: That, that book they have—that's like in the pocket guide. Yeah, book? exactly. Little Right. So a bunch right? of people have done that over Perfect. the years.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So I—I ha- I got one year, and I think after that. It was like, we don't want her anymore. I was
1: about to say, I hate to, I, I hate to say that. Dana was like, Dana Cowan was like, what's was this shit?
0: Just, it was just, I mean, I can't imagine. I, don't, I remember the editor said, you certainly have a strong voice. I guess we'll work with it. Um,
1: I guess we're stuck with it. Yeah,
0: it was for this year. Um, but it was writing that book that I realized whole. Whole areas of the universe had been wiped out as far as wine and everything. That, it was the height of internationalization. I hated so much of the wines I was tasting, and I didn't know what I'd be able to write about.
1: Right. So this is the time when you're getting these red wines that are just over-extracted, pumped down, overripe, over-oaked, over-built, mm-hmm. um, and and I mean, I think for me, one of the one of the one of the kickers was drinking these. You know, sitting down with a bottle myself and having. A, a bottle change over the course of two hours, 25 times. Mm-hmm. The first glass, the first sip was different than so the middle of the glass, it. than the end of the glass. And then the next pour was a different, right. not a different wine, but a different expression of the same wine. Yeah. And I, I know it's ridiculous, and I know it's it sounds like I drank the Kool-Aid, but you can almost feel... In your palate or in your tongue, life in these wines. But There's you some...
0: haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. Well, uh, you have, which is why you appreciate this, because you know what the Kool-Aid is like. <laughs> so you have, but this isn't the Kool-Aid. Because it is – what sulfur and high levels of sulfur all right. and all that uh, – not to say all those other controlling agents. It really does put a lid on a wine, and it forces it to stay in one place. Right. So it absolutely is the nature of a low-sulfur wine to be free.
1: And you feel it in the palate. It's crazy. And I, so I was, I was talking to Isabella Giron. I think I like, bumped into her a couple of weeks ago at, 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 at Rouge, because it was another right. pre-raw party night. Right. It was yes. in the front, and my son and I were on on the way to Brooklyn to go eat. But I, I wanted to I wanted to go there and say hi and see Pascalina. I wanted to see, see your son. I had to see... You well, saw him. You had I dinner we'll with see him. Again. He's, I again. So, he's so funny. So, and Isabel had this great description of like because I was telling her about sort of my evolution of drinking. You know, as an old guy that's been drinking wine since the, you know, the Eisenhower years or something. That you know, now when I go back and I drink this much more traditional, like the way wine had been made post-World War II, probably the zenith of the worst years was the late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. when it was you know industrial farming, uh, uh, catalogs of, of yeasts, uh, you know tons of spray, tons of nitrogen, just mm-hmm. the worst. But um, there were still some great wines coming out of Bordeaux, there were still some great wines coming out of the world, but she had this great she described to me, she said, you know, so much of those wines, all of them really, they're just they're, they're mummified, was the word that she used. Mm-hmm. Because they need to produce it you know, once it's done with the oaking and once it's in the bottle and once it's rested in the bottle for the year or so before the release, they want it, it'll age a bit, but they want that thing to stay the same. Right. So, and, and the mummification was perfect. I began to think of it like, like a preserved dead body, which is kind of what it is.
0: Yeah, that is a good one. I haven't heard of use that. So basically that experience led me to why do I like these wines as opposed to those ones? And the wines that I was looking for were... Um, Well, we didn't use the word natural then, but I just started doing a lot of investigation into wine technology and realized what I was liking was organically farmed native yeast fermentation. I thought the problem was new Oak because back then it was, everything was tasted like cherry vanilla. if It was a red wine and everything tasted like Chardonnay fully oaked. If it was a white, no matter what. So it was really, I was in the search to try to find traditional wines and that led me to natural wine. So I've been writing about it since 2001
1: and Georgian wines before anybody was out there too. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That was really brilliant. Um, um, so let's talk about. I, I want to get into the book in a minute, but I, but um, like the thing about yeast is so important. Um, you know, we grow grapes, so I mean, farming practices are huge, and that's a big part of wine. But to me, like, if I wanted to pick like the moment, like the a window where the expression of that grape is going to follow through into the bottle of wine it 's fermentation it 's native yeasts it 's how they 're fermenting how they're controlling fermentation um, but its it's to think that we, 97% of the wines when they come into reception, once they're selected and go through, they're just gassed with SO2 to kill the natural yeast, to mm-hmm. kill the bacteria, inoculate it, so they can then go into a catalog and say, oh, I'm going to use yeast number B172 mm-hmm. because I'm looking for my Sauvignon Blanc to be really grassy, cat pissy, yuc-. I mean, there are those books. There's books that have thousands of yeasts that describe I mean, that's yeah. what are you doing? You're like, you just just, you've, you've, Killed the grape, and you're just making something artificial.
0: Yeah, it's really the flavored and fragrance suitcase that they have in the perfume industry. That's what the yeast catalog does for the wine Because so soup. much
1: of when we're sniffing, we talked about, I mean, in your panel, we talk about, like, so much of us appreciating wine is putting it to your nose, letting those phenolic compounds release and then picking up all of those esters and volatile compounds that are coming out. That's I mean we can we can detect tens of thousands of them. We really don't taste much in our mouths with mm-hmm. our nose closed. Mm-hmm. But but so much of that what happens in fermentation is what's expressing itself then at that point. It's so so much of those compounds are a result of fermentation. So like natural yeast is critical to the wine. If you're talking about terroir, it has it's to critical. be natural yeast. Of
0: course it's critical.
1: It's cri- absolutely critical.
0: But, you know, terroir has become a marketing term, and most of wine are, is like produced because a marketer decides what the people want. Right. So, and um, that is a commercial product that's. For well, you had market. a book on that. Different you had, had a book
1: about book. The, uh, the. Robert Parker's in the title, I think, the Parkerization yes. of.
0: Uh, for, um, the love, Wait, that's my last book.
1: <laughs> There's love no. in every title. There's
0: a, the okay. battle for wine and love or how I saved the world from Parkerization.
1: Yeah, because the hegemonic book. effect of those scores in exactly. the 90s was just insane. Winemakers were making wine so Parker would give them the 94s and 95s so they could right. sell them for whatever they got. Which is-
0: But right now we're going to be seeing that with natural wine. I mean, I'm not flattering myself, but uh, people will, and I've seen people try to please me with the wine. I know they probably do that with Pascaline as well. And it's... It uh, makes me feel very unhappy.
1: So talk about the book. The book is so fantastic, and I can't believe nobody wrote this book before. Because as a wine lover, I don't have any MSM anything. I don't have never. I've never taken a wine class in my life. I just love wine. Then um, I taste, and I was a chef, so I have a good yeah. tasting tasting equipment, if you will. Um, but soil typicity and rock bait it's so critical and and so they te- they say technically speaking like the scientists half of the, the science right? that you do you cannot taste minerality in wine period
0: right it's a little, and bit we like, know
1: this not to be true as tasters,
0: well, I, you know the whole minerality thing, I think that minerality debate is the same debate, same kind of straw man that people in the natural wine world or against the natural wine world say there is no such thing as a natural wine you basically a natural wine is vinegar, so you can't taste minerality, but that is the that is the fire to distract from the fact that. Soil really does make a difference where you grow it. And I'm not saying, and the book is not making the case, that you can taste flint, that you can taste granite as far, or you can smell it. But there's something structurally that relates back to where a wine comes from. And even if this is not true, I still say it doesn't matter. Because what I'm hoping to do here is to bring people back to thinking, you know, Wines taste differently when it comes from Piemonte than the Finger Lakes. Now, why is that? It's climate and it's soil. And the climate is going to change and light is changed. But the soil is one of the last things to change. You do change it through farming. But the actual bedrock stays the same. And so at least that grounds us back into place because the people who really believe in terroir believe the grape just is the interpreter of place and that is what got us in not that oh my god i love malbec i love chardonnay that isn't what gets us into wine it is the mystery of travel and history through what we are drinking and the experience of drinking it together and the conversation and it is an ultimately cultural um human experience
1: Great, perfect. I agree. Agree. Well so you and Pascaline did that panel and it was really neat. And Pascaline was talking about like, for example, Muscadet. she's from Loire, so yeah. we know yeah. if we're talking Pascaline, we're gonna be talking Chenin. we're gonna be talking Cap Franc, we're gonna be talking Muscadet. Um, they talk about you know, the the various I mean the lay of the land because there is no one style at all, but you know her ability to taste muscadet grown over certain soil types as just markers right away. That if she's in a blind tasting, which she's done a million times, she's a master sum, So oh. clearly, she's got the 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 tasting yeah. and the the chops to break wines down blind. But you know those are markers for her. Mm-hmm. And I know for I think for all of us that idea of you know she was a huge fan of limestone, right? Um,
0: well, no, no, she's actually a big fan of, of of schist. Oh, I'm, schist the, I'm, sorry. I'm the I'm the Okay.
1: <laughs> well, you had some quote where somebody said limestone is for rich people and yeah granite. that
0: was jose pastor it's in the book and but that I is love the it. line that's all right because when you it. think
1: of limestone you're thinking champagne you're thinking yeah. it was, it was and very so we specific.
0: both really like low level low level in quotes um, terroir but yeah jose we both love granite so much yeah. yeah it's like limestone is for rich people granite is for the people
1: <laughs> i love that line
0: and um, when, Yeah, and poor regions usually have granite so it's like yeah and wonderful wonderful wines
1: so what have you been drinking lately? Tell me about the fair. What was the takeaway? What did, was there? Was there oh. something? I mean, it was usually successful. It was. I know successful. when I saw Isabel on the Thursday before the Sunday, she said, "Don't." She said, "Pull." She said, "Don't even bother coming Sunday because it's a thousand people. It's sold out. It's going to be crazy." And my son went. I gave him the ticket. I said, "Go early." Um, I get a phone call from him at 1.30 and he's like, "Where is this place?" I'm like, "What the fuck?" Dude? <laughs> it opened at like eleven. Like I told you to go early. I guess even you're twenty six early.
0: Yeah, early is like takes on early. different.
1: And then then he. Texted me like just like something when he was there, just like one word of like, "jeez," like, yeah, dude. He right. he had trouble talking to the winemakers, like you could barely get in line to taste. It and- was
0: it. If um, it was way beyond packed, it was very difficult to move. And when yeah. you're dealing with tasting or, or if you really want to do tasting, it was very hard. You had to be very competitive to get to a table. However, having been to I've only been to one wine experience in my life and I don't need to go to a spectator one ever again. Uh, the crowd was so much more humane and decent.
1: Oh, it's true. I went to spectator once. It's funny. So I went to great. spectator once I have it at the Marriott and I was like, never again. Never I did again. it because I was doing radio and yeah. someone invited me. And I and then Drew called me this week. Because this year Drew called me. He yeah. said, "What are you doing tonight?" You want to come to comes, I said, "No, Drew, I love you, but yeah. I've been to I've been to one right. of those things before it's like a cab yeah. car but guys. It's in suits people and, were
0: very very polite. There was no shoving to get, but of course there were no superstar wines, so people weren't there for um, status symbol. People were there just to taste and discover. So I had to do a seminar on Sunday and on Monday. So, and it's really hard for me to taste before I do a seminar. So. I and then it was just too jammed, and I said, forget about it. But I did taste some things in the morning before people got there. That was good. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was really, I was, talked to a lot of the winemakers afterwards. They were really happy with the quality of person that showed up.
1: That's great. And so and and to that end, I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, I'm 60, so everybody under 40 I refer to as a kid anymore, but it looked like there were a lot of, like, 20-something and right. 30-somethings there. Am I wrong about that? I, I really can't tell the ages. It
0: was all over, over the, all over the map as far oh. as ages, and there were a lot of young kids. There.
1: A lot of young kids, which is great. And I, I mean, you That's must great. love this as someone who's been in this tank for a while, of just seeing how... Younger have this whole generation of millennials or X's or Y's—you ever going to call them? How stoked they are about the world of wine and knowledgeable. Yeah, it's crazy.
0: It was young and it was also, I in my reading that I did for my the the Georgian book for the love of wine. My I can't remember the name of my books. For the love of wine, my uh, odyssey through the world's most ancient wine culture. Get yes, it, out Yes, there you
1: go. And it's, so, and it's a big fair view. all those things on the screen. The there cover. wasn't
0: one person who asked me to sign the book there who is from New York.
1: Wow.
0: A lot of people from Canada. Canada, Japan, Mexico, uh, California, Chicago, Ohio, that state. Let's uh, not talk about let's Ohio. let not talk um, about anything and, uh, like But I was really pretty impressed. That's that so cool. It was people really traveling for it. And
1: they came to Bushwick? They for came is- to Bushwick. To they're, willing,
0: they're willing to come to Bushwick. <laughs> to New Yorkers is- don't want to come to Bushwick. <laughs> Every New Yorker I talked, we like, were like bitching and moaning. Sorry, we're talking in Bushwick. But it was deeper in Bushwick. And then it was stop. all... It was, So (laughs) when does the book come out? The book comes out in June.
1: So I'm getting you on. This is a done deal. So you and Pascaline, by then, hopefully, the New York Times, she's done. She's cool. She's rude. She's going to take a little time off. We're going to get you out here because I want to bore down on that discussion with the two of you because you two are so great. Great panel. Thank you. Alice Firing, by the way, spell your last name.
0: F-E-I-R-I-N-G.
1: First name Alice. Go, go to Firing Line. Subscribe to it's her a, newsletter. Subscribe
0: to the newsletter. It's
1: great. It is really great. There's like, I don't know, six or seven a year. She's great. No one's paying her to discuss their wine. She's a completely free spirit. will able to do whatever she says. She, and she's a great writer. I mean, did, did you major in like writing or something? It was a minor. Well, you're great. Thank you. So anyway. Alice Firing has been my guest. Firing Line, you can find out about her there. Um, thanks for listening. Next week, I am off. I cannot be in the city next week, unfortunately. But the following week, we're back live again with some great guests. Folks, take care. And we're going to make America great again. Peru. Uh-huh. Okay. I thought we were great. But anyway, um, Alice, thanks for coming out. Folks, we'll see you in two weeks. Take care.